Open your Bible to the book of Genesis. We have a lot of ground to cover today. I don't know how much we'll cover. Um, We'll be in Genesis all next year if I don't hurry up, right? But there's so much. It's so rich. Today, we're going to cover... We're going to cover Genesis 25 and uh, 26 for sure, and we may get into some of 27, which means we're going to have to kind of talk about, um, really kind of stay focused on the broader themes. So Genesis 25, um, I want to read starting in verse 19. So we're going to we're going to read Genesis 25:19 through 34, and we're going to talk about that. Then we'll read some of 26 and talk about that, and then we'll see where we are after that, time-wise. Because we do have our mission meal today, and we do want you to stay, and we do pray that you would generously give to help support our missionaries. Genesis 25, verse 19. Let's uh, read together. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful skillful. I'm sorry, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew for his, uh, I'm sorry, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is it? This what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob swear, said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. By the way, I've had that stew that Esau sold his birthright uh, f- for. Seriously, our uh, miss one of the missionaries we support 
uh, Gitanus from Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, a very uh, common, uh, authentic e- Ethiopian dish is a stew made with red, with red lentils, a red stew made with lentils. And it's commonly um, believed and referred to in Ethiopia as the stew that um, Esau sold his birthright for. And, and I can tell you, it's good, but I sure wouldn't have sold my birthright for it. But anyways, um, even if I was starving. So here is the story of Esau who sells his birthright to Jacob. So Esau, like Adam, now think about Adam, sold his birthright for something to eat. Jesus, in his temptation in the wilderness, did not despise his birthright, though he hungered greatly for natural food. He instead chose to be sustained by the very word of God. You see this in Matthew 4.4 and also Luke 4.4, the temptation of Jesus when he's in the wilderness and he's been fasting for 40 days, the Bible says, and Satan comes to him and says, I know that you can turn these stones into bread. Why don't you go ahead and do that? And Jesus' response to Satan was, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what is our point in going through the book of Genesis is to look at the gospel presented to us in the pages of all of the scripture. So what is, what is it that we're seeing here in the story of these twin brothers and the older selling his birthright, the right of the firstborn, to the younger for a bowl of pottage? And this pictures for us this principle of the first and the second. We see this with Esau and Jacob. We see it throughout the scripture. We saw it with Ishmael and Isaac. We see it with, with uh, Esau and Jacob. We see it with Saul and David. We see this principle throughout the scripture. And so throughout the scripture, we see this spiritual truth of the first being rejected for the second. The substance of this is understood and applied in the rejection of the first man, Adam, and the acceptance of the second man, who is Christ. So this story of Esau and Jacob is reinforcing what was introduced to us in the beginning when the first man, Adam, was created and he was rejected. He fell. Why did he fall? Because God eternally has purpose that the second man, this is what Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is called the second man. And the first man was rejected and the first man fell because God's eternal purpose was always to bring the second man and salvation would come not through the first, but through the second, through the second man. So we see this principle. And this is what is being played out here in the story of Esau and Jacob along with a lot of other stuff. So God created the first man, Adam, to bring forth the second man, who is Christ. Now understand, Jesus, who is Jesus? Is Jesus a created being? Or is Jesus the creator? Jesus is the creator. Jesus is not a created being. But God caused his son, his eternal son who is just as divine as the father God caused his son to come forth born of a virgin 
the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh and came to us in what we call the incarnation. We're coming into the Christmas season. What's the Christmas season? It is the season that we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus when God put on flesh and came to earth. And God put on flesh and came to earth in the form and the substance of Jesus Christ. And God brought forth the first man for the purpose of bringing forth the second man who is Jesus Christ. It is Christ whose image that will fill the creation through all born a second time. So those who are born again bear not only the image of Christ, but they become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become Christ. We don't become gods. I had a conversation with someone late last week who was under the mistaken uh, assumption, thought that we are gods. We're gods. No, we're not gods. We're not creators. We're creation. We're not God. We are God's creation that God made a way for us to become partakers of his nature. That doesn't make us God as he is God. But it absolutely makes us join to his life. And it gives us something It gives us something that is beyond our imagination. It gives us something that we can never gain that's of this earth. It gives us something we can't buy. If we were able to amass everything that we could ever want or imagine that's of this earth, it would not compare to what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. God created the first man, Adam, to bring forth the second man who is Christ. And Christ is the one, it's the image of Christ, it's the life of Christ, it's the glory of Christ that God wants his children, those born again of the Spirit in Christ. He wants that image and that glory to fill the created order. And how do we, how do we become partakers of that? How do we become part of that? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And thus, God's glory in Christ is the point of all creation. Remember, creation is for us, but it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. So all the types and shadows of the first and the second we see in the scripture are to be understood in this light. It's not a rejection of the first simply because the first has not done enough to be qualified, or it's not a rejection of the first because the first has done something to become disqualified. God, remember, is this artist who paints with shadow while holding the substance in view. Who is the substance God has held in view as he paints with these shadows? Christ is the substance that he's holding in view. So with Esau and Jacob, this real story of these real twin brothers, what God is teaching us, what God is pointing us to is Christ, who is the substance that the first man is rejected because he's bringing forth the second man. And it is in the second man that God will cause his glory to be magnified. And so we can't, we can't just say that everything that's first 
is rejected because it's first. We can't apply this, in other words, in a carnal way to say that all things first are always to be rejected. That's not how we understand this. That would be a misapplication of this spiritual truth that is given to us to point us, to reveal Christ to us and our need for Jesus and the salvation that comes through him. So this spiritual principle reveals our need to be born again. We're separated from God in our first birth, but we're joined to him in our second birth. Until we're born again of the spirit in Christ, we are of the first man, Adam. We're the old man, We are the man of sin and death. And God, out of hand, absolutely rejected that man and said, You, O man, cannot come to me in your sin and in your death. You must become a new man. Now, how are you going to do that? And how am I going to do that? Can we pay enough money to become a new man? No. Can we work hard enough to become a new man? No. It is something God must do. So there is a rejection of the first and there is acceptance only in the second, in this new man that we become by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we become, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God. So that first man is rejected by God, so we come to him in the life of the second man the new man who is Christ. This is why the first is rejected, because it speaks of our old man being put away with Christ and us being raised in the life of the second man of a new creation in Christ. It's not the brand of sin that separates us. It's the fact that we are sinful. We're born separated. We must be born again to be joined. So we come to the Father, not in the first man of our natural birth, we come to him in the newness of Christ, the second man through a spiritual birth. And this is why Christ came and died. He was the last Adam putting away that first man in the cross so that he could become the second man and the first fruits of resurrection accepted in the Father. He is the seed that fell to the ground and died so that it could be raised up in new life, magnified, multiplied, and filling all creation. That eternal plan was always to bring forth the promised seed who is Christ. And in Christ, raise up a harvest, a people, a body, a family, a kingdom, a city. These are all speaking of something. It's speaking of what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. We're not a city, but yet we are a city. We're called a city that descends from heaven, the bride of Christ in the book of Revelation, to raise up the church. What was God's eternal plan? It was to raise up the church who is the bride of the Son and fill the earth with the image of the Son and the glory of the Son to the glory of the Father, to the glory of the Godhead. This is the picture we see here in the rejection in Esau, the firstborn, rejecting his birthright. And Jacob, the secondborn, receiving what did not naturally belong to him. So let's move to Genesis chapter 26 now. 
And let me read to you the first six verses and then verse 12. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I tell you. Remember in the first famine, Abraham went to Egypt. And now in this famine, it's, it would be very natural for Isaac to do what he knew his father did. Go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Because the Nile River, the Nile Delta is there. So there's always water in the Nile. There was, there was water there. There was food there. But God says, don't do like Abraham. Don't go to Egypt. Stay in this land. Dwell in this land. And I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham... Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now, now there's famine in the land. And we didn't, I didn't mention this, but you go back to chapter 25. And you notice Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. And he cried out to the Lord for 20 years because his wife was barren. And when, when, Isaac, was, when Isaac was 60, Esau and Jacob were born. So for 20 years that Isaac and Rebekah are married, Rebekah is barren. And Isaac is crying out to the Lord because Isaac knows the promise that was given to his father. And Isaac is 40 years old, and we're, we're approaching 20 years into marriage, and Isaac and Rebekah don't have a child. Remember Sarah, she was also barren. Here is Rebekah, she is barren. Abraham there was famine in the land. Here is Isaac with a barren wife and there's famine in the land. Are you seeing the picture that God's painting? Out of barrenness. Out of unfruitfulness. What does God do? God brings fruitfulness out of unfruitfulness. Out of barrenness, he brings life. He brings fruit. He brings blessing. And God tells Isaac, don't do what seems very natural for you to do. Don't go to Egypt. Stay in this land, in this land of famine. Stay in the barren place. So the promise is in the righteousness. And why did God promise to bless Isaac? Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed. The promise was given to Abraham. And God says, because of your father, because of Abraham. What is all of this showing? Does it mean Isaac had no responsibility? That he was just going to ride in the coattails of his father Abraham? 
No, that's not what it means. But it means that Isaac did not come to the place that he was, the place of promise and the place of blessing, apart from that promise made to Abraham. And what is this, what is this showing us? It shows us that the promise is in the righteousness of another and fruitfulness is in God's appointed land. Who is the land of promise? Now, I'm not talking, this question, the answer to that question is not about geography. The answer to that question is a purpose, as a person. Who is the land of promise God gives to us? Christ is our land. He is the land, the ground that we must stand on. If we are not standing on the resurrected ground of Christ, if we're not standing on Christ and the ground of resurrection of the Son of God, then we have no standing before the Father. Christ is the ground we have to stand on. He is the land that we must dwell in. This is not just a picture of how God is going to provide food for us when there's real famine in the land. This is a picture of where we must find ourselves standing. This is a picture of where we must find ourselves dwelling if we are going to experience in reality the promise and the blessing of God. And if Christ is not the land that we are dwelling in, if he is not the ground that we are standing on, we have no standing, we have no fruitfulness, we have no promise of blessing, we have nothing but barrenness and famine and certain death. This is what this picture is painting for us. The promise is in the righteousness of another because of Abraham, your father, because he obeyed. The promise came to Isaac because of the righteousness of another. Fruitfulness came in God's appointed land, not in the land that made sense naturally, but in God's appointed land. It doesn't make sense when someone says, lose your life so that you can find it. That just doesn't make natural sense. But in God's kingdom, it makes absolute sense when Jesus says, lose your life in order to find it. Because that's, that, is, that is the kingdom. And the kingdom transcends and supersedes everything that seems to make natural sense to us. It doesn't make sense to stay in the land of famine, but it was God's appointed land. It doesn't make sense to say, pick up your cross and follow me and die that you may live. That doesn't make natural sense, but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of God and in God's economy and that trumps everything because that rules everything so this is a picture of Christ who is our promise of fruitfulness and blessing in a barren place from barrenness God brings fruitfulness and blessing this is what we see in chapter 26 now let's get over to chapter 27 I told you we've got to move fast. So you can go through chapter 26. You can find all kinds of things there. But that's what I want you to see. God affirmed his promise to Abraham in Isaac. And that promise is based in the righteousness of another. Just like Abraham trusted in the righteousness of another. Just like we must trust in the righteousness of another. Christ is our righteousness. We must trust in him. To be blessed, to be fruitful. 
And that's not in any carnal or natural sense that I'm speaking. So let's go to Genesis 27. Now, let me read to you, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read a little bit here. I'm not going to read the, the whole chapter. I'm going to read down to verse uh, 29, actually. It's a lot, but I want you to get the context here. So now, when chapter 26 ends, now get this, so chapter 26 begins with <clears throat> uh, them moving down into, uh, or the famine comes, and God says, don't go down to Egypt, stay where you are. And chapter 26 ends, and it says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took wives uh, from the daughters of, um, of Ishmael. Um, or it's the daughters of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elion. We haven't got to the daughters of Ishmael yet. So Esau took pagan wives. He took Canaanite wives, which is not what he was supposed to do, but he did. So he wasn't supposed to sell his birthright, but he did, right? So now, chapter 27, now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. So when Esau was 40, how old was Isaac? He was 100 years old. So Isaac is at least 100 years old. He's actually uh, probably older than that right now uh, when 27 picks up. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son? And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob. Remember what it told us in the earlier chapters? Esau, uh, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Rebekah's listening to what Isaac is telling Esau. And so she comes and she speaks to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, for I am that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. And then you shall take it to him, to your father, that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. I want you to pay attention as we're reading this. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. And he went and he got them and brought them to his mother. 
And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, <clears throat> and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids, on, of the goats, on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father... And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of the game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, Boy, that's a loaded statement right there in verse 20. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. And he said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my son may bless you. I'm sorry. uh, Let me read that verse again. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss And kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be those who bless you. Then it says, Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. So let's take just these first 29 verses. And let's look at these. And we'll probably look at the rest of this story, the rest of this chapter next week. So in these first 29 verses, we see that Jacob, who is the second born, receives the blessing of Esau, who was the firstborn. Now, I want to point out some things. Um, There's a lot to talk about in this story, and so I don't want to rush through it. But the first thing I want to point out to you are the types and the shadows that we see here. Who do we see as a type of Christ in the story? We see Rebecca. Rebecca, the mother of Jacob, is a type of Christ. Look at what Rebecca is doing. Rebecca is preparing her son to come into the presence of the father, to receive the blessing. And unless Rebecca prepares her son, unless Rebecca prepares Jacob, to come into the presence of the Father. Jacob has no hope of receiving the blessing. He can't just come 
as Jacob unprepared, he would not have received the blessing. So we see Rebecca as a type of Christ who prepares us for the father. We see Rebecca as a type of Christ preparing Jacob to give the offering to his father and receive the blessing that he has no right to receive in himself. Do you realize that when we come to the father and we receive every spiritual blessing in Christ, we don't receive that because we have a right in ourselves to receive that. We receive that blessing because we have come to the father through another, through the righteousness of another. We're going to look at this in great detail. This story paints a beautiful picture of our redemption in Christ and how we come before the Father. And so Jacob is coming to Isaac, his father, to receive that which does not naturally belong to Jacob. He, and he cannot, Jacob cannot receive this blessing in himself because he doesn't deserve it and it doesn't belong to him in himself. And Jacob rightfully says, but what, what if my father discovers it's me and brings a curse on me because I've deceived my father? And what does Rebecca say? Let your curse be upon me. If that's not a picture of Christ, Rebecca declares, let your curse be on me as another picture of Christ who became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or we could go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we can see that it says, uh, let me begin reading in verse in verse 21, he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let your curse be on me. Rebecca prepares Jacob so that Isaac, the father, listen, will see and know Jacob as the firstborn son, Esau. Listen, this story is not put in the Bible to give us a moral lesson about whether we should or shouldn't deceive people. That's not the point of this story. I know a lot of commentaries and a lot of places you read, they turn this story into nothing but a moralistic lesson. This story is not about a moralistic lesson. This story is painting a graphic, beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us to prepare us to come into the presence of the Father so the story of Jacob receiving the blessing and the inheritance of the firstborn is the story not about deception. It's a story about identity. It's not a natural moral lesson. It's a natural picture of a spiritual reality that has been accomplished for us in Christ. In the story of Jacob receiving the blessing and the inheritance of the firstborn, you see Jacob, look at this, clothed in the garments of another with the fragrance of another receiving what he is not qualified to receive in himself, he receives it in the identity of another. When we come to the Father, we don't come in our own identity. We come in Christ, clothed with the righteousness of 
Christ, covered in the blood of Christ, coming with the fragrance of Christ so that the father does not see Jeff Ripple, the old man. He only sees the son, the second man, raised in power and glory. And I come before the father in the robes of righteousness that Christ gives to me in the blood that makes me clean and pure that Christ poured out for me with the very fragrance of Christ because I am immersed in Christ and the father does not see me he only sees his son he doesn't know me he only knows his son the righteousness of his son and I am accepted by the father receive the blessing from the father because I come to the father in the son this is the picture being portrayed, being painted, being delivered to us through the scripture. This is the gospel of Christ. This is the good news that you don't have to try to work yourself to be good enough to come to Christ because you can't. You come, you have someone who's going to prepare you and bring you and make a way for you to come to the Father and you will receive the blessing of the Father, not in yourself because you don't deserve it in yourself, but you receive it because of another You come in the stead of another, in the identity of another. So in the story, Jacob receives it in the identity of another. This is a picture of us prepared by Christ, clothed in the righteousness and the fragrance of Christ, receiving from the Father what we are not in ourselves qualified to receive. We receive the blessing of the Father because we are identified in and through Christ. So Rebecca is a type of Christ who prepares us For the father, Jacob is a type of the church who comes to the father with the identity of another. It's a story about someone who has no natural right to inherit this blessing from from his father. Someone who is not qualified naturally yet being somehow uniquely qualified and even recognized by the father is something that he is not. Jacob is not recognized as Jacob. Jacob is recognized as the firstborn. Therefore, he receives the blessing of the firstborn. And from that natural, from the natural perspective, it looks like deception, but it is the picture of how the Father in heaven looks at us and sees Christ. Not that we are Christ, but that we are hidden with Christ in God. That's what the scripture says. We're hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our righteousness. God has tucked us away in the rock and put his hand over us so that the one that he sees and recognizes is the one who is worthy to be in his presence. It wasn't that God was protecting Moses from the fire of his glory. Let me put my hand over you so you don't get scorched, Moses. No, listen, God was hiding Moses because Moses had no right to come into the presence of God in and of himself. God put his hand over Moses and hid Moses and God the Father saw the one who was worthy. It was the Christ. It was that physical representation of God passing by God tucked Moses away in the rock and put his hand over him that he would see only the one who was worthy to stand in his presence. We stand in the presence of God 
through the merit of the one who is worthy. We have no natural claim in ourself except that we are clothed with him, hidden in him, smell like him, and given the offering in our hand that the Father desires. Jacob did not go out and get the offering for himself. Rebekah is a type of Christ, gave to Jacob everything that he needed to come into the presence of his father and give to the father what the father desired. We must appear before the father as everything the father expects his firstborn to be. This is why we can only come before the father joined to and clothed in Christ who has become for us everything the father will receive delight in and glory in. Christ is the only begotten of the Father, the only born Son of God. He is called the first fruits. We come clothed in that only begotten, that firstborn Son of God. We come to the Father clothed in Him, and we are received by the Father because of Him. And we are able to offer to the Father what we are able to offer to Him because God has, because that's been provided for us in Christ, by Christ, who has prepared us in every way to come into the presence of the Father. Well, I have more to say, but we're going to stop right there today. Aren't you proud of me? And we'll pick up next uh, week with the second part of chapter 27. So when you read the Bible, for instance, is there a moral lesson to be learned in um, learning about deception? Sure, there's moral lessons to be learned in that. But here's my point. If you will read the Bible with eyes to see Christ, you'll learn all the moral lessons you need to learn. But if you read the Bible only with eyes to find the moral lesson on the pages of Scripture, you may find the moral lesson, but you may miss Christ. And you may learn a lot of really good moral lessons. And you might be a really good human being living on planet Earth, very moral, very good as described by men, but when you come to stand before the Father one day, your, moral, your morality, your goodness, and all the moral lessons you've mastered will not gain you one inch, one centimeter in God's kingdom. But if you will read the Bible with eyes to see Christ, you will not only learn all the morality you need to learn, but more importantly, you will come to know the one that you must be clothed in, the one that you must smell like, the one who has to prepare you and even give you the offering in your hand to bring to the Father. And if you don't come with that, then you have no access to the Father. You have no way of receiving anything that is of the Father. But in Christ, we receive everything that is of the Father. We become joint heirs with Christ. So, Here's the question I, I want you to ask yourself today. Do you have eyes to see? Are you 
walking around with eyes closed or eyes distracted by the things of this world? Are you captivated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Or are you blind, trapped in darkness, and and you just can't see? Do you see Christ? It's an important question. Do you see Christ? A better question may be, are you looking for Christ? What are you looking for? When you read the Bible, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a way to get more money, more health, more wealth, better fortune, better luck? What are you looking for when you read the Bible? If you're not looking for Christ when you read the Bible, you're looking for the wrong things. I pray that you begin to seek his face. To seek it always in all things. And I mean in all things. Begin to look for Christ. And you'll, be, you'll, you'll begin to see the wonder of his glory all around you. Begin to look for Christ. And when you read the Bible, you'll begin to see the wonder of his glory recorded on every page of this book. And if you say, well, I'm trying to do that, but I'm not seeing it yet. Keep looking. Keep searching. There's a treasure. There's a treasure here that's worth finding. There's a treasure here that's worth looking for. The proverb says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And the wise don't stop searching just because they grow weary. Don't settle for earthly, carnal things that are fleeting and passing away before your very eyes. Don't settle for less. Look to Christ. Look for Christ. Allow Christ to be the water that quenches your thirst and the bread that fills your empty soul. Christ alone will satisfy. Everything else will fall short. You may die a very moral person, but you may die and find that you've lost your soul because you traded it for morality. But if you will find Christ, you will have everything. Don't settle for less. Settle only for Christ. For he alone will satisfy. Let's stand and let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, in the, in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, he said these words, give us this day our daily bread. Christ is the bread of life. Give us Christ. Give us a hunger and a thirst for Christ. Give us eyes to see Christ on every page of the scripture, in the earth and in the sky, in the world, all around. Give us eyes to see Christ as we walk, as we walk through the valley of shadow, And in the table that's prepared before us, in all things, both in the good and in the bad, in light and in dark, in plenty and in lack, give us eyes to see Christ. Give us eyes to see our hope, to see Christ in us, to see Christ around us. As Patrick prayed, before me, behind me, above me, beneath me, Christ within me. Give us eyes to see Christ in all things, 
Christ, who is our hope and who is our glory, give us eyes to see and a heart to know and to make known your glory that is in Christ, that is in all things. We pray this in that name above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.